Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Paul Lisnick Behind the Curtain. Ordinarily, I introduce uh, the show by saying it's my chance to step away from the world of politics uh, that I cover on television and enter the world of the theater and the arts, which is what I typically do here on the WGN Radio podcast. But today we are staying in the world of politics, but big time and in a way that you will find incredibly exciting, I have no doubt, because joining me now is Miles Taylor. He is the author of a new book called Blowback. A warning to save democracy from the next Trump. And before you think, oh, this guy's this liberal, whatever, he was in the Trump administration. Um, he, he is a, uh, an expert on public policy, national security, former chief of staff for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. He saw it inside and his view now is based on what he saw. You know him for another reason, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Miles, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Paul, great to be with you. And and I'll join you in lamenting the fact that we have to talk about politics today because it's also the last thing I want to be doing. I want to be with you. That's fun. But boy, do I hate talking about politics right now because I went into government just to be in national security and not to deal with electoral politics. But unfortunately, it's foisted itself upon all of us. It has. And and by the way, we'll just note you are doing this from a movable vehicle because you are on a book tour right now. You are literally on a book tour. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is- this real time. You got me on the road. <laughs> I moved over to the passenger seat just to make sure we're safe. Don't worry. No one's going to get hurt in the recording of this podcast. But uh, yeah, I'm out there crisscrossing the country. Well, I, I've seen you for a long time on television and just just have so admired the courage and, and the work that you do as, our, as my viewers and listeners are going to hear. But here's why people know you, even if they think they don't. It's because you had another book come out before this, and it was called A Warning. But the author was anonymous. And for, I don't know, what, a year, year and a half, everybody in Washington was going crazy. Who is anonymous? Who is this guy trying to figure it out? Meanwhile, you're on TV. You're doing your thing. You're talking about this book written by anonymous. Who was anonymous, Miles? Well, uh, Paula was me. And, uh, and, and that's actually, in a sense, where this book begins, because I learned a lot from that experience. You know, like you said, I'm a lifelong Republican that went into the Trump administration, not because I was super excited about Donald Trump, but in fact, I was a little worried that he was deeply unprepared for that job. I'd worked in the Bush administration and went in with a number of my mentors who I later called the axis of adults. And I was very naive in thinking that this group of very seasoned national security officials would be able to help coach Donald Trump into the job and act as sort of a guardrail uh, against his worst impulses, which we'd all seen at the time publicly. No, no one thought he, this was a paragon of virtue going into the White House. Uh, and and then I, I wrote an opinion piece from within the administration anonymously in the New York Times, because over the course of a year and a half in that administration, I grew very concerned about the president's behavior and witnessing presidential misconduct at the White House. The president's inclination to do things that were unethical at best and oftentimes to ask us to do things that were illegal. But my worry, Paul, is that the so-called axis of adults around him wasn't saying that publicly. In fact, they were so concerned 
there were conversations among the president's lieutenants about invoking the 25th Amendment if it got any worse, which would allow them to potentially replace the president with the vice president. To me, that was a trigger point. I mean, that was a point at which the American people need to know that the situation has gotten that serious. Now, I flag the anonymity piece, Paul, because I think my big regret looking back is that I didn't unmask myself Sooner, Because I realized when I did unmask myself to campaign against the president, what it did was it made it easier for other people to come forward by saying, hey, the water's warm. So I now realize if I'd done that a year sooner, I might have gotten even more people to join me in turning against uh, the now ex-president. And so I do wish uh, I had done that sooner. But, um, you know, hopefully it called attention to the message at the time, which is what I was trying to do. I get that. But I also think at the time, look, there's no question that people who turned on President Trump paid a price uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, and so not not coming out from being anonymous absolutely makes sense. But eventually you find that courage and you come out. And I what I love about this book is it, it's not just this is not an anti-Trump book, per se. I mean, you have a message in this book. You have things you're trying to teach us, along with some personal things that you have gone through in life that just shows us the impact it's all had on you. I, I enjoyed reading it literally cover to cover. Let's talk about some of those things. One of the points you make kind of a philosopher in this book, you say that anonymity is a gift to authoritarianism. So by the way, was there a connection there between making that point? And then it made me think of you gave up your anonymity. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's ironic coming from me, right? Is that I would say in the book, which I do, that I think the biggest threat to American democracy is anonymity. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean whistleblowers who choose to remain anonymous to protect their families. In fact, last night I was with a number of prominent government whistleblowers, as well as the attorney, Mark Zaid, who represented the intelligence community whistleblower who brought forward the allegations about Ukraine that led to Donald Trump's first impeachment. That person remains anonymous and rightfully because the law protects that person so his or her family and career can be safeguarded while still allowing them to flag what they viewed as potentially corrupt behavior at that time. What I mean in this book by anonymity being a danger to democracy is our collective anonymity right now. And the fact that especially on the Republican side of the aisle, where I grew up, where I started my career and where I served for many years in Washington, people believe one thing in private, but they say another thing in public. And more specifically, Many of the elected Republicans you see on television today disparage Donald Trump in private. In fact, a lot of them say he's a threat to democracy, but then they go on television and they say something different. That anonymity, that refusal to tell the truth and that wearing of a mask, I think really puts democracy in danger because it encourages people to vote in a way they otherwise might not if they know the truth. And I'll put names to this. I mean, one of my big frustrations uh, is Kevin McCarthy, who's the Speaker of the House. And I used to work in the House of Representatives. I would be in weekly meetings with Kevin McCarthy, and he had very, very grim views of Donald Trump, but views that he doesn't share publicly. I think that's a problem for our country, for public officials to be two-faced like that. And it took me learning 
learning that the hard way about how the anonymity that I had in some ways resulted in blowback, in some ways had the unintended consequence of making the problem worse. I write in this book, Paul, that Stephanie Grisham, who was White House communications director under Trump, later told me the fact that I was anonymous drove the president so crazy (laughs) that it actually made his bad impulses worse and had that unintended consequence. And and I think as a country, we've got to be more willing to speak the truth than attach our names to it. By the way, how do you identify now? You don't have people like former Congressman David Jolly who just, you know, just now renounced the Republican Party, or at least there are those who say, look, I used to be a Republican. I can't. It doesn't exist anymore. How do you identify? A concerned American. Uh, politically, I'm an independent. And, you know, I think it's really, really important uh, if you reach the conclusion that you can't fix your tribe from within, that you go try to fix it at least from somewhere else. I didn't want to just give up. And I felt like it was really I spent two years trying to reform the Republican Party from the inside, built organizations, worked with current and former Republican members of Congress to try to wean us off the MAGA movement and bring back what I call rational Republicans. And in a lot of cases, we failed. So I ultimately left the party, but I'm still a conservative. I mean, you know, I've allied with a lot of people on the political left to defeat Trump and to keep his movement from reemerging. But they'll be the first to admit that my libertarian views are really contrary to their public policy views. And that's okay because right now I think the bigger issue is not the role of government and society and politics and taxes. It's the survival of our democracy. And that's where we can find common cause. In fact, one of the things that you write about that's a little frightening to read, you say that you learned that in politics, the real struggle these days is not between us and them. It's between us and us. Who are those two us's? Uh, I think individually, we all struggle with this. And and let me point to something that I think resonates with everyone, regardless of where they're at on the political spectrum. And that's the fear of cancellation. Right now, people are so afraid, whether it's in politics or in their personal lives or owning a small business, they are scared of standing up and being canceled. And we're trained in life to think that everything's a battle, especially in politics, us versus them against a president or a political party, when really the biggest challenge is to decide what we are going to do with the truth ourselves. Are we going to stand up for it? Are we going to mask it? And I do worry, I call it a collective bystander phenomenon, that our fear of getting canceled as people has led us to suppress the truths. And I do really think that that is a sickness inside of our democracy, that it's leading people to change again, like I said, their voting behavior uh, and otherwise not act the way they would. The only way to address that, Paul, is to lower the price of dissent by speaking out. And and we certainly saw that with people who defected from the Trump administration is the more Republicans that spoke out, it made it easy for others to say, you know what, you're right. This guy doesn't really represent what we stand for. Let's go back to the days when Democrats and Republicans could debate with each other, but still respect each other. And we had gotten much further afield from that under Donald Trump. And it helped to have those Republicans come forward and say that. Uh, But, you know, we're still in the thick of it because, you know, Donald Trump is the odds on favorite to be the GOP nominee and has a really good shot of being the next president. And what blowback is all about is trying to sketch a very clear picture of what will happen if we give him a second chance. Well, indeed, you've mentioned the title blowback a couple of times. And so you do define it in the book. You say it's unintended consequences or I think 
for me, accurately, the way you put it is it's the failure to anticipate repercussions. Is that the problem with the people who stay in that with with that administration who stayed with it? They didn't really anticipate just how bad things would get. Well, it is. And I think it's the worry about Trump 2.0. And it's a term that we use often in the national security community. I mean, if a military operation is launched and it's poorly planned, the consequence can be fatalities. And right now we're experiencing potentially the same thing with our democracy. If we are not very thoughtful and clear eyed about what would happen in a second Trump administration, we may experience the civic blowback to our democracy of choosing to do it again. And you don't have to listen to me because in this book, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of top Republicans that served under the ex-president, that have helped found the MAGA movement, that are senior Republicans in Congress spelling out for us in black and white what will happen in a second Trump administration or the administration of a copycat. And it's not a pretty picture. And But, but again, you don't have to believe me because the ex-president has come out and said very publicly that the theme of his second administration would be revenge. And that's what a lot of people I spoke to for this book said is that they worry that he will weaponize the powers of the federal government to attack political rivals. That's not how government's supposed to work. And that's not how conservatives are supposed to govern. Indeed, to support that in the book, you basically talk about um, that the American system is designed to prevent a tyrant, this kind of thing from happening. There's guardrails. That's why we have checks and balances in different branches of government. In fact, you write the election of Joe Biden should have been the death of the MAGA movement. Didn't happen. So take all of that and let me add on one more piece for you to address along with that, which is you said the next Trump, because it may not be Trump, but the next Trump will have an easier time of this because of the transformation of the Republican base. Yeah, they will. And look, I define this very precisely. Trumpism or the MAGA movement isn't just some pejorative term that people use to attack the other side. It actually has meaning. What does the MAGA movement believe? Well, as I just noted, one tenant is the you know, weaponization of the levers of government for political purposes. And two, it's the dismantlement of democratic guardrails. A lot of folks in the MAGA movement and Trump himself view uh, those guardrails as inhibitions to doing what they actually want to do. They view them as an impediment instead of as a safety mechanism. Those two viewpoints, I used to think mistakenly, naively, were just a Donald Trump phenomenon, that Trump himself was an aberration. And he had these anti-democratic views that weren't a threat to the country. If only we could get him to walk off the stage and go behind this uh, behind the curtain, as your show is called, you know, get him off the stage. Uh, I was wrong about that because his views infused the wider base of the Republican Party. And if you look at Pew surveys, if you look at NPR polls, there's a zillion studies that can show you that this is the case. A lot of Trump's views about democracy and democracy's guardrails have been fused to the Republican Party. Why is that relevant? Because even if Donald Trump is defeated in the primaries, whoever takes his place as the nominee is going to have to cater to that base in order to win. And that means they are going to govern like a MAGA president. That's what worries me, is that far-right movement of my former party has hijacked most of the party. And even if it's someone who looks a little bit more moderate that's the nominee, there's a grave risk that they'll end up catering to the MAGA side because that's who's in control of the machinery. 
And it, it may very well be that one of the reasons that Trump didn't even accomplish all this in a first term, and you write about this, and by the way, what I love about the book is you write about these things in your experiences, but it's all pointed to the future of a here's what needs to happen to prevent this again. So your message is not just here's Miles' memoir. The message is this is what you, America, need to learn to see what's coming. So, so picking up on that, I'm just going to focus it on one thing. I have this long question, but I don't have to ask it because you give a description of the Oval Office as a New York bagel shop. And anything that I could do to expand that question just pales in comparison to that fabulous phrase. So talk about what it meant, at least until, as you write, John Kelly came on board, what the Oval Office called the New York bagel shop looked like. Well, uh, well, first, I, I got to address the, the point that you made, which is that no one wants to read another Trump retrospective. No one wants to read another memoir from the Trump years. So I promise you that's not what I've given no, you. Right. And and the goal here is really where possible to draw connections between the past and offer a realistic forecast of what could happen in the future. And that forecast is probably going to be a New York bagel shop with an atom bomb dropped in it. Because in the first <laughs> term, the reason I called the Oval Office a New York bagel shop is the first time I walked in there, you had Trump barking orders to people like they were patrons on the other side of the cash register. People were coming <laughs> in and out. It was crowded. It was dysfunctional. It was totally not what you would expect to be happening at the center of the most powerful country in the world. It was chaos. And that chaos filtered downward into the rest of the White House, into the executive branch and across the country. We all lived it. Even if you loved Trump, you probably looked back at those four years and said that was exhausting. <laughs> well, if you think that was exhausting, you ain't seen nothing yet because a second term won't be populated with people who try to come into that bagel shop and restore order, clear it out and, and, and make sure that the cash register runs the right way. It will be filled with copycats of Trump because what his lieutenants told me again and again is that the biggest lesson he learned is that people are policy. And he did not like that there were Republicans of conscience around him, conscience, trying to keep him from doing things that were illegal. Next time, those people won't be there. And Trump is intent on making sure that the executive branch is stacked with loyalists. And even if Trump's not the nominee, the MAGA movement has taken over a lot of the institutions that end up referring people into Republican administration. So, look, we've really, really got our work cut out for us if we make what I think is a grave civic mistake of giving Trump or his successor another shot at the White House. And in fact, I was going to ask you about that, but you addressed it. I mean, the whole notion of that Trump didn't know how the government worked at first, but now he does. And so the, the, the mechanisms are in place for him to do exactly what he's talking about if he chooses to with the support of Republican colleagues on Capitol Hill. Um, and, and and you also write the next Trump is only going to have loyalists. So even if it's not Trump, it could be DeSantis, it could be somebody else. They understand what has to happen. In fact, many would say a lot of them are even smarter than Trump. So they will make sure that they are surrounded by those very fat. Would you agree with that? I don't think DeSantis gets it. Well, because not only that, but- Paul, I mean, I, you know, a number of them have actually gone further than Trump did. That's what actually really worries me. I'll give you two fast examples. One, during the Trump administration, the president wanted us to bus and dump migrants from the border into Democratic cities like they were pawns. And specifically, he called and said, I want the murderers, the rapists and the criminals sent into blue states to sow chaos and disorder. Okay, well, that's illegal, Paul. I asked our lawyers and they said that would be illegal. And Trump ruefully let the idea go. 
after his administration, Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas said, well, we'll do it. And they went further than Trump. Same thing with the FBI. Trump wanted us to gut the FBI and install political loyalists in the FBI. We said, we're not going to do that. It's the nation's premier law enforcement agency. It has to remain independent. Trump ruefully stepped down because he was worried about being impeached. Unfortunately, his acolytes now think that gutting the FBI is a popular talking point, and it's become a mainstream position. Those are the things that worry me about a Trump 2.0 being worse than the original version. Uh, by the way, there are some things that I always thought they were sort of mythical. People would hear about them, and they sounded almost like Trump jokes, but you write about them. So you can just give me a quick lightning round, yes or no. Is it true or is it not that Trump actually wanted to build a moat filled with alligators to keep, keep illegal people from entering the country? It's true. I was on the phone with him. Is it true that when it came time to California wildfires, he didn't consider it a tragedy? He thought it was a revenge on a state that didn't vote for him. Yeah, in fact, he asked us, Paul, not to give aid to the wildfire victims because he was really mad that the Democratic governor of California didn't support him. So that must have given you pause back then, too, to get those kinds of uh, kinds of explanations. You know, you were also getting a lot of attention lately on a lot of talk shows. And I don't know whether I mean, the book just the book has just come out. Right. So uh, I've had it for a while and I appreciate that. Um, but people are getting their hands on it, are realizing that all these questions that's been swirling since Mar-a-Lago. Did former President Trump show classified documents to people who shouldn't have seen them? And then many people are going, just take a look at Miles Taylor's book. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've been trying to flag this since early in the Trump administration, first within the administration and then outside of it. Inside the administration, in the early months, I was really worried about the president's handling of classified information. As is now widely known, he shared things in the Oval Office with the Russians, our adversaries, that he never should have shared. It terrified us. Uh, you know, there were times where he grabbed fistfuls of classified documents and waved them in front of reporters to brag about the quality of the intelligence he was getting. Really reckless disregard for the protection of our nation's secrets, the lives of our warfighters uh, and, and Americans that need to be protected. We now saw that, of course, after he left office absconding with highly sensitive information. I really worry uh, whether or not Trump's the next president, that a lot of his act lights have the same disregard for the American intelligence community and the protection of sensitive information. We've seen it time and time again, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene attacking the CIA, attacking the FBI. Uh, you know, I worry that these folks, if put, uh, you know, in the Oval Office, would do what Trump did and potentially misuse sensitive intelligence for political purposes or to get leverage. So I think that's a it's a great concern for our country. You had a conversation from one of our homegrown, Adam Kinzinger, uh, now former congressman, but uh, uh, incredibly nice guy. And and um, you, you sort of raised the point, or maybe Adam raised it with you, which is to say, you know, that Republicans these days, because, you know, why don't they rebel? Why don't they do something? They are more afraid of incurring the wrath of Trump, apparently Adam said to you, than they are of the death threats that they get when they it, go against him. And this was I, the reason I put that passage in there is I thought Adam hit the nail on the head is that, you know, there are a lot of physical threats against public servants right now. In fact, from a public safety perspective, the numbers are higher than we've ever seen them, even after 9-11. Uh, but but they're scared of something more. Republicans are scared of being kicked out of the tribe more than they are of threats to their families. That's what Adam said. And it reminded me, Paul, of a joke Jerry Seinfeld used to make where he said, studies show that Americans' number one fear is public speaking and their number two fear is death. So they would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. Nothing better explained 
is Republican leaders right now in our country, people who I've worked closely with, is they are more scared of getting kicked out of this tribe than they are of death. And that's why they're not speaking up. And the only way for us to get them to speak up is is convince them, don't worry, it's not the end of your political career and life to go out there and tell the truth. Voters want you to tell the truth. I used to teach those very points about those surveys. They're real surveys. And when I would teach public speaking uh, and just finally, Miles, we have just just about a minute left. But I just look, you also write about the struggles you went through, the alcoholism, all the things that I'm sure got ex- exacerbated by all this, the loss of a relationship. I'm happy to say it all ends up now, although interesting as an alcoholic, your dog is named Martini, but that's up to you. <laughs> that's a, it is an irony. I mean, look, <laughs> if anything, Paul, I'm a I'm a cautionary tale about what it means to suppress the truth. Uh, my fear about coming forward as anonymous did lead me to really bad coping mechanisms, alcohol, pills, until I wound up in a hospital room after an overdose and had to reckon with the hypocrisy of the fact that I was out there warning people about a reckless president who was destroying democracy's guardrails, and I couldn't even fortify my own internal guardrails. I felt like it was important to tell that story, not just because it's relevant to our democracy, but hopefully it can help out other people out there who haven't come and told their families they might be struggling. Well, Miles Taylor, first of all, people who have watched this interview can also watch my interview of you on our WGN News Midday News, the Midday Fix segment, which is now available by the time they're seeing this. The book Blowback, I got to tell you, I couldn't wait to get it. I got to stand up because I'm in front of a green screen. I couldn't wait to get it. Couldn't wait to read it. I read it cover to cover. Congratulations. I wish you nothing but success and and stay on the path of success that you are. You have an important voice and please keep that voice loud. Thank you, Paul.